people through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson. On FBI 94.5. Hello, FBI radio listener. Yes, Joey Watson here. Correct. You are listening to this show that is called Out of the Box and every Thursday from midday to one, I get to sit down with one person and chew the fat and they throw into the mix a few records from their life. You say, we're trying for a child. I hear, my husband's been doing big, huge cums in my pussy. This quote was taken from the Twitter feed of my guest on Out of the Box today. It has 10,000 retweets and 62,000 likes, and for this presenter, at least, is nothing less than a testament to her comic genius. Nina Oyama has been a bong smoker, a party goer, and done a dash of working the counter at Supre, but she is nothing short of a chronic overachiever. Just out of uni, she was picked up to play a recurring role in the hit comedy Utopia. She was a comedy writer and performer on Tonightly with Tom Ballard, and her self-written three-part series, The Angus Project, was picked up for the ABC's Fresh Blood Initiative, just to name a few of her credits. Her award-winning stand-up show Needs a Facelift is playing at Sydney Coast Comedy Festival every night until Sunday. And right now, Nina Oyama, a warm welcome to Out of the Box. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm really glad that you opened with the most graphic tweet of all time and uh, then proceeded to describe me as a bong smoker. That's the best bio I've ever had. I mean, I'm really happy about it and I was really happy about your Twitter feed. It's like a, a wash with jokes about um, aforementioned Come. uh, coming and pussies. <laughs> Uh, and you've garnered a pretty impressive following because of it. Yeah, I'm like interested. There's a real niche market for it that I, it was untapped. Well, that's I guess. amazing. Like, was it a conscious decision? Like, did you um, like it? Was it like a social media strategy that you're like, I'm going to start like proliferating content of this nature, or was it like, oh, I just I just did one and it worked really well, and I'm going to keep it up? Yeah, I don't know. I think I just I started out. Can can we swear on this show? No. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, we'll just like, no, okay. I started out doing like, po- you know, on, um, it's called S word posting, um, on Tumblr where you like write really stupid things and then you try and get likes. I tried to do that, but on Twitter. And then after that, it just turned into, it just devolved into like disgusting tweets that people seem to like. So is there a creative process? No. <laughs> I'm really, literally no I'm really it's... interested in one, in one that I found particularly triggering. Okay. There was something to the effect of, um. White dudes should spend more time making their uh, girlfriends, girlfriends come than than making podcasts. Yeah, that's. I think it was imagine if white dudes spent time making their girlfriends come instead of making podcasts. But, um, I can see my producer Bree absolutely loves that one. Yeah, yeah. It's. I think that one hit hard with a lot of white guys. I was memed and like shed on all these weird LA comedy groups as well as a result of that. So that was. That was pretty cool. And then a lot of white guys who make podcasts got really angry at me. <laughs> They're like, it, but it's easy to make podcasts. So I'm like, mm, it's easy to make girls come too. But maybe if you stop trying to make podcasts, you know that. <laughs> anyway. Well, that's um, one of the most exciting starts to this program that I've had so far. <laughs> it's all downhill from here. <laughs> Let's go to some stories. Okay. Do you remember being creative as a kid? Uh, yes and no. Not really, like, as a child, but definitely in my teens. I was, like, always writing stuff. I was, like, reading, writing out to the class. Yeah. Did you come from a family that encouraged that? Nah, not really. Did they discourage it? No, my family's, like, like, my dad's Asian, so he, like, tutored me in mass all the time. Um, And I did a lot of, like, I didn't do a lot of writing or, like, creative stuff, but I did a lot of performing. Like, I did dance, like, I did competitive dance and, um like gymnastics as well so I did like a lot of extracurricular activities but um and they encouraged that but yeah nothing really super creative like it was only when I like I broke my leg in year 10 and I'd kind of like really wanted to become a stand-up comedian for ages but when I had like three months of like being on Panadine Fort and just lying on my bed watching comedy all day I just started writing comedy and when I was 17, I finally like got the guts to try it out. But my parents were like, why are you trying comedy? Like, you're not even the funny one in the family. <laughs> like, your brother's way more funny than you. And I was like... Mm. What sort of high school did you go to? Uh, I went to a selective high school. Um, like, I went to North Sydney Girls. Yeah, that's right. I'll say it. Um, <laughs> I, I was really smart when I was, like, 12 years old. And then, like, pretty much as soon as I got to high school, like I just stopped going to class and like totally flunked out every subject. And I dropped out in 
year 11 or 12. I don't know, dropped out at some point. Were you just not coping in that environment? Yeah, I think I'm like not cut out for academia. Like even when I went to uni, I was like, oh, I hate this. Like every day I was like, why am I here? But I did learn. Like I like learning, but I like learning things that I want to learn. Like I hate maths and I don't hate maths and science. I'm just not like my brain isn't predisposed to like figuring out how molecules work. So it kind of just like got really sad. I was like, oh, I'm so dumb and I can't figure this out. And then I just got depression. Then I was like, I'm just not going to come to class ever. Depression. Yeah. Triggered by being in that environment. Uh, I feel like it was just triggered by like a whole bunch of things and probably the fact that I do think I do have a natural tendency to be anxious and depressed. Like, well, this is really sad. No, I'll say it. Um, so when I was like in year five, I once did a test where like I didn't have that many friends um, in primary school and I did a test where I sat on the quad, like curled up in a ball just to see if anyone would ask me if I was okay at lunchtime and like nobody asked me if I was okay. And then after that, I like convinced myself that nobody loved me and yeah, I don't know. It was like weird from that. Like I was always trying to like make people care about me because I just felt so worthless. And when it was validated that they didn't, I would like spiral into bad thoughts. There's that, you know, thinking around like a tears of a clown. Do you, do you think that in some way your aspiration for comedy was drawn out of that? Yeah, absolutely. Like how so? <laughs> um, because it is like it's that validation. It's like putting something out there and being like pay attention to me because I'm sad. Oh, not because I'm sad, but it's like it's like willing people to love you. I mean, I realise I'm not being very funny right now, um, but I do think that's like a part of comedy. What's that thing? It's like um, the clown story, like the, the doctor, he's like, there's a guy and he goes to a doctor's office and the doctor's like, and he's like, I'm really sad, doctor. And the doctor says, well, why don't you go into town and you see the great clown Pagliacci? And the guy says, but doctor, I am the great clown Pagliacci. Um... And I just think, I don't know, that's probably every comedian. I'm not the great clown patch, actually, but I do think there's an element of, like, like when you're sad, yeah, just try and garner attention, make other people laugh because it gives you the spotlight for that second and makes you feel of value. So from depression and panadine comes your first stand-up experience when you're 17. Yes. Do you remember that vividly? Um, no, it was all kind of a blur, but I do. So it was at like the Roxbury, which I think yeah, it's in Glebe. It's not, it doesn't exist anymore, but, um, it was part of a comedy competition. And I think I came second in the competition on my first night. Uh, and I just remember it going really well. Like I remember everyone laughing and I remember riffing and then getting off stage and be like, oh my God, I just riffed. <laughs> like it was such a big deal to like not stick to my script, but, um, yeah, and then pretty much, like, the consequence, like, 10 gigs after that, like, the second to the 10th gig after that, I just bombed every night because um, I performed in, like, a random back alley pub on Parramatta Road to, like, three people playing pool who were like, why are you doing stand-up comedy at me? Um, but I think that made me tougher. But it was the first gig. Like, if that first gig didn't go well, like, it, I probably would not have continued. So it's all from the inspiration of the first show. Do you think bombing's important? Oh, my God. Bombing is so important. Like, if you don't bomb, you don't improve. And now I'm, like, really afraid to bomb because I feel like people think I shouldn't bomb. And so I just do the same material over and over. But I have written new material, but it's just, like, it's so scary because you're, like, putting stuff out there and you're, like, what if people don't like it? Like, what if people don't... Because when you bomb as a stand-up, it's, like, people don't like you as a person. That's what it feels like. It's like not just, you know, if you bomb in like a theatre show, it's like, oh, they didn't like my character or whatever. They didn't like the writing. They didn't like the directing. You can blame it on everyone else. But when you bomb in stand-up, it's like, you suck. <laughs> like, but by the same token, it's like when you do well, it's like, you win. <laughs> so that's cool. Um, speaking of anxieties, your first song choice uh, is Rewrite the Stars from The Greatest Showman. Might <laughs> strike the anxieties of some FBI radio listeners, but um, they'll persevere with it. And, and with, uh, with us for this episode of Out of the Box, can you tell me the story behind this one? Oh, my God. I can't believe you're kicking off with Rewrite the Stars. I deliberately, when I sent you like the order, I, co I couched it in the middle between two quite niche songs. Anyways... I just it's thought we might kind of get it, get out, it out of, of the, the way. way early. Oh, I thought it would be like a nasty little surprise. Well, firstly, I love The Greatest Showman movie. I don't know why. I'm like obsessed with it. This is not indicative of my movie taste all the time, but I just think it's like a really well, like a really well structured movie. Um, it's really entertaining to watch. It's like got a good message outwardly. I think like as a movie production wise, it's problematic because it, 
The Greatest Showman is about uh, P.T. Barnum, who like historically was this guy that treated people with um, physical differences. Um, he treated them poorly and basically like kept them in a circus where he was horrible to them and like displayed them as freaks to the public. But but in this movie, um, this alternate history, like Hugh Jackman plays P.T. Barnum and he basically like helps all these people with like who are, have different. Uh, physical deformations or whatever they're just different to people um he like treats them really well and he shows them to people and people accept them as they are like it's a really wonderful movie about acceptance so i really like that anyway listen to this song i know you want me so don't keep saying our hands are tied you claim it's not in the cards fate is pulling you miles away and out of reach from me but you're here in my heart so who can stop me if i decide that you're my destiny what if we rewrite the stars say you were made to be mine Nothing could keep us apart You'd be the one I was meant to find It's up to you and it's up to me No one can say what we get to be So why don't we Rewrite the stars for you, FBI radio listener. You're not better than enjoying that if you think you are. If you think you are, don't worry. There's a bunch of indie tunes coming up. So I, I, I got into that. That was that was fantastic. That's uh, that's from the greatest showman, uh, Zac Efron there, um, uh, and brought into FBI radio today by Nina Oyama. She is my guest on Out of the Box. Hello. Nina, why did you move to Bathurst after school? Um, I moved to Bathurst for university because I had a theatre course there that um, I heard was pretty all right and you didn't need a good mark to get in there. So I went there. Tell me about the first assignment that you had to do. Um, oh, my first assignment was like to go to the pub. Basically like Bathurst theatre... Uh, theatre degrees they like love doing um, assignments at the pub and like I've asked around and that doesn't happen at NIDA but anyway we liked yeah they did this thing called it was called mumming but I like to call it theatre busking which is where you like basically do an impromptu performance and then you pass around a hat and beg for money um, so that was like my introduction to the theatre course and and what was the reception like 
Um, yeah, you know, it was it was good. We talked to like a lot of colourful characters. Like I, I do. The other thing is the show, the mumming show. Um, the busking had to be about something that the local Bathurst people cared about. And so we had to, before we started formulating our scripts, we had to interview a bunch of local Bathurst people and we just ended up in, like, the scariest pubs. Whoa. Like Baptism I do, of fire into the Bathurst community. It Honestly, it really was. And, like... What sort of characters did you meet? Oh, man, just so many, like... Like, I do this as a bit in my show, which is a guy who says, like, I think Paul... He, we were talking to him and he goes, I reckon Pauline Hanshin should be president of Australia. <laughs> and, like, I was like, okay. And I was like, why? And he's like, oh, because she's going to stop the boats. And, like, me and my friend were like, which boats? And he said the Japanese fishing boats because they're killing all our whales. And that's, like, a real thing. Wow. That happened, yeah. And it's like, I didn't know if he was, like, actually racist or just, like, a dumb and loved animals. Like, it was such a confusing thing. But it's like, people are so misinformed formed out there like to the point that it is farcical like can be a racist and an environmentalist at the same time but he like he was racist because like yeah exactly because of the one was informing the other or something yeah it was so weird like that's what he thought pauline hansen stood for it was so bizarre but like my um manager hates that joke like they're always like that joke sounds fake and i'm like no it's it's like so real. It's like very true to my Bathurst experience. Was there a demand for stand-up comedy in Bathurst? Yeah, there was. Um, when I moved there, I actually started a comedy night, um, which happened a couple of times a year. But uh, it was really cool. When I was there, so I when I was in my first year, I like there was a stand-up comedy night on O Week, and I was just just like, hey guys, I've done stand-up for ages. Can you put me on? And they're like, yeah, sure. Um, and then afterwards, I did a joke about being called Schnitzel Tits. And then after that, everyone called me Schnitzel Tits because <laughs> the MC was just like Schnitzel Tits, everyone, as a joke, just to back announce me. And I, and then after that, like I would just whenever I walked down the street, someone would be like, "Oh, Schnitty, Schnitty Titties, oh, Schnitzel." Just at the bar, they're like Schnitzel, <laughs> like you know. What was the joke? I have to quench the curiosity of the listener. Oh, I can't remember the joke now. It's it was something about being like how people yell at me out of car and one time someone yelled, oi, schnitzel tits, um, <laughs> which is something that I made up because I was like, that's pretty funny. But now I do a, a new joke, which is about being nicknamed schnitzel tits. But you'll just have to come to my show and find out if you want to see it. <laughs> what sort of lifestyle was it when you were at university in Bathurst? Oh, man, it was, like, so loose. Like, I don't know how much <laughs> can I say on the radio, but, like, I guess like you said I was a bong smoker. It was very, like... Um, very liberal with drugs. There's no parents there, right? So it's just a bunch of like teenagers and like people in their early 20s just living out of home and they're like just discovering everything for the first time. Um, and they're just, yeah, it's just like a very incestuous party life. So there was a lot of drug taking? There was a lot of drug taking. Like in a way that at the time I thought was really fun and now I look back and I'm like, oh, that was probably a bit toxic, but it was. I think it was fun. It was just because it's so unregulated. Like, you don't have parents to come home to. Like, lecturers don't really care. Like, sometimes I'll just leave. Probably shouldn't say this. No, I'm going to say it. Like, you just, like, leave because my um, lecture hall was right next to my friend's dorm. And so we would just be like, oh, can we, can, miss, can we go to the bathroom? And then we would leave and, like, punch a bunch of cones and then come back to class as if, like, nothing had happened. And it was just like, you could do that. Like, you could do anything. <laughs> Do you think there was ever a stage when you were dependent on drugs? Oh, absolutely. I'd say I was, like, probably for, like, two good years, I was, like, a wake-and-bake stoner. So it meant that I still did things. Like, I wasn't unproductive, um, but I did... I definitely depended on drugs to live. And now I look back and I'm like, whoa, that's so crazy because I can't... I feel like, yeah, my life is at such a pace now that I can't really, like, afford to slow down. Like, I didn't... Yeah, I don't even drink that much anymore. Like, I'm not... I'm just very nerdy, basically. What did you do for work when you were in Bathurst? Um, oh, I worked at Cotton On. And then later, after Cotton On, I worked at Supre in Sydney. Oh, retail. The retail fantasy. Oh, yeah. Were you... Um, like, were you doing odd jobs at all? Did you... Uh, I read somewhere that you were driving for work in some way. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. This is part of my show. I think it's in my show bio, but I did become a black market taxi driver. You tell me about that. Yeah, because my dad... Um, So my dad's a real taxi driver in Sydney. And so on Anzac weekend, like, he makes heaps of money. Like, I remember one time my parents were just being, like, dicks and they were just like, 
they were like, war, ah, uh -huh. what is it good for? And my dad's like, takshi, because <laughs> he's Japanese. That's how he talks. Um, but it was very sweet. But like when Anzac Weekend came around in Bathurst, I was like, well, I'm poor. Why don't I become a black market taxi driver? And so I just put on Facebook like $10 uh, for a lift home and like $15 if you want to go past Macca's and uh, made a little bit of money. <laughs> Did you get speeding fines? I got so many speeding fines. I've had my license suspended like so many. Like I can't drive right now because of crimes I've committed <laughs> from like two years ago. Like that's how bad. I owe the government a lot of money. So that's please wild. come to my show because I need you to help me pay it back. <laughs> well, if that's not reason enough, I don't know what is. Um, the next song you've chosen, Nina, is a Sunrise by Pulp. What's the go here? Oh, my God. Pulp is my favourite band in the world. Um, and this is one of their, like, newer songs, definitely, before they stopped, uh, before they broke up. But this one is just, like, Pulp, Jarvis Cocker, the lead singer of Pulp, is just, like, this kind of grumpy old dude. And this is a song about how he hates the sun coming up because it just makes him feel like a sack of crap. Um, but the second half of the song is, like, is the sunrise like it's just all instrumental and it has like a real Fleetwood Mac in the chain vibe like it's just so good I uh, hope you enjoy it I used to hate the sun it shone on everything I'd done it made me feel that all that I had done Was overfill the ashtray of my life All my achievements in days of yore Range from pathetic to
That's Sunrise by British group Pulp, the all-time favourite band of my guests on Out of the Box today, Nina Oyama. Yes. Um, Nina, in a really short amount of time, you go from partying and driving fines in Bathurst to a recurring role on one of Australia's best-loved TV shows of the last decade, uh, Utopia. How did you pull that off? Honestly, I don't know. Um, Thoughts and prayers. No, I honestly, I truly don't know, but I had... By the time I got Utopia, I had been on the comedy scene for about seven years, which means there was like footage of me doing stuff. There was like writing that I'd done. There was there was just like a lot of like a portfolio, I guess, of stuff of mine um, accessible to people who needed it. And I also did a Grain Waves ad, um, and I sent that to the casting agent, and somehow I got the gig. But I honestly don't know. That's that's the truth. So, I mean, how does the casting agent come to you? I mean, th- th- this she is a just, big moment in your career, right? I know. I, I honestly, I still don't know. I talk about it in my show a little bit, but um, I mean, I had done some TV work. Like I did uh, this show called Stand Up at Bella Union, which is where I did stamp comedy for SBS2. And then I also did um, a lot of community TV, like I did About Tonight, where I hosted a, like a late night show, essentially, that was filmed at nine o'clock in the morning. Um, but yeah, I did like kind of a lot of things like that. And I think that they saw that and were like, she looks cool. I don't know. I, I don't know, but I assume. Where were you? Was it a call? Yeah, it was like a phone call. Where were you? Uh, I was in my house and I just got a call. And it was like, like I was like about to go to a sh- uh, shift at Supre. Like I was... Yeah, I was very unprepared for it. I think it was also at the same time that I was pitching the Angus project, so like I hadn't even gotten that opportunity yet. Um, so that was very, it was very exciting. Yeah, how, I, don't, I don't know how I got it. <laughs> how were you um, financially when you first moved to Melbourne? I was so poor. I was like so poor I couldn't eat food. I talk about this, a lot of the things I talk about today I talk about in my show, but yeah, like I was so poor, like I basically just like ate fruit like brown fruit from the ground like in Brunswick West and I lived in a shed in someone's yard um to be honest it was like a really nice shed like it was it had a carpet which I think is definitely like good for a shed um but it it still was a shed at the end of the day so you're working in this like high-flying comedy job pretty much as high-flying as they come in Australia yeah um but you're living in a shed furniture did you have furniture uh I didn't have any furniture I think there was like a table when I got in there and a mirror. Where did you sleep? Where did I sleep? Uh, the first couple of nights I slept on couch cushions and then like the second day I think I, I dragged a bed in from the street. Like I just dragged in like a random dirty mattress. Um, and I tell a story about it in um, in my show. It's a very good story. I'm just going to leave it to the show. But I will tell you this is that I told people at Utopia because like my first day at Utopia people were asking how my life's going and I was like, oh, I live in Brunswick West. Like it's very bohemian. It's kind of like Marrickville. It's like, you know, I just started drinking soy lattes and like doing gorilla knitting. Um, and people at Utopia that's like, were like, oh yeah, cool, cool. And then I was like, oh yeah. And I brought in a mattress from the street and everyone was like, what the hell? Like everyone freaked out. And like Kitty Flanagan as well, especially she was just like, she was like, did you really bring in a mattress from the street? And she like pulled out her phone, just started texting like really like aggressively into her phone. And I, I was just really worried. But then she ended up just buying me a mattress and sending it to my <sighs> shed. So it was really lovely. Um, and it really kind of like woke me up to like all my problems. Cause I was like, oh, it's not normal to live, you know, to eat brown fruit from the ground and like sleep on a dirty ripped mattress that's probably covered in bugs. Comedy legend Kitty Flanagan buys Nina Oyama, my guest on Out of the Box today, a mattress. Yes, when I was at my lowest as well, I was like, I had never, yeah, I just like hadn't really done any TV work before and that was like my first day. And I think it's really like, it's like inspired me. Yeah. Tell me about walking onto the set of a professional television production. Um, it was really cool. I would say, I just want to preface with like, when I first got the phone call for Utopia, I don't know if they know this, but I had no idea what it was. I pretended like I did, um, but I actually did not, I didn't even know who Working Dog was, right? And Working Dog is like an amazing Australian comedy company. Um, they've made like The Castle, they made Frontline, which I've watched now and I'm like, this is a mind-blowingly good show. They make Have You Been Playing Attention. They're incredible. I I love them with all my heart. Um, but at the time I was like, I don't know who these people are. And the head of Working Dog, or one of the main writer performance is called Rob Sitch, who's like quite a revered guy. Um, like if you're under maybe like 20 I think people 
people don't know him so much, and I definitely didn't. Um, and so everyone's like, oh, we're going to take you in to meet Rob Sitch. And I was just like, yeah, cool. Like, I don't... Okay, cool. <laughs> like, it's just a guy. Um, I think if I did know who it was, I probably would have lost my mind. So I think it was very lucky that I wasn't quite aware of their status. But um, it was still very good, and I'd never done... Like, there was, like, two cameras, and they shoot really fast, so you always need to, like, be right on top of your lines and, like, know how to interact with people. And I think if you do watch the third season... I mean, like, I am too scared to watch the third season now because it's... I could probably see how new I was. But um, a lot of people have been like, oh, yeah, you you fit in really well. So that was good. Really? So you make the decision not to watch back your own comedy or your own television comedy? Well, I watched it back when it came out, but I think I probably wouldn't rewatch it because then I would just cringe too much, I think. Is that because you've developed so much since? I think so, because I'm definitely, like, a lot more comfortable on camera. And I, like... I, I know it's very weird, but when you're acting, like, you do have to... You have to act like a human, so you have to, like, react to things and listen to things. And I feel like when you first start out in acting, the whole time you're just like, what are my lines? What are my lines? I don't know. And, like, I feel like if I watched it back, I could probably see myself thinking. I don't know if that's true, and a lot of people have told me that it doesn't look like that. So, like, full disclosure, it's probably fine. But I probably wouldn't be able to stop myself from scrutinising every level of my performance. But I'm not an actor, to be fair. I mean, like, I technically am an actor, but, like, by trade, I'm a comedian. So I'm kind of, like, I guess (laughs) that's... It's, you know, I'm not like Kate Blanche. I didn't go to, like, 10 years of (laughs) NIDA and WAPA and whatever. Like, I went to a theatre course in, in like, Whoop Whoop, where I smoked a lot of bongs. So, you know, I feel like I, I did good for what I am. And in tribute to that, the next song we're going to play is uh, Braces by New Zealand artist Paul Williams. Oh, what, my God. What's happening here? Okay, so Paul Williams, I'm, like, obsessed with this song on so many levels. Paul Williams is a New Zealand comedian. He put out an album, uh, and this song is just really great, but... I don't know if anyone here is like a massive classical music nerd, but the bassoon line from The Ride of Spring is in here. I used to, I know this because I used to play bassoon and it's so random. Anyway, it's just like an 80s dream pop synth song. Um, that's really cool. I love it. Enjoy. She wants braces, but you don't need them, girl. She's not wearing makeup, but you don't need them, girl. 
know you got 22 years of experience at being you. But when nighttime arrives, girl, your beauty still shines in the dark by itself. So you always be pretty as long as there's love in your heart and some crooked eyes, teeth in your mouth, if them braces. was Paul Williams from New Zealand, the song Braces, chosen by Nina Oyama. She is my guest on Out of the Box today, and her show uh, is currently running at Sydney Comedy Festival tonight until Sunday. Cop a ticket, if you will. Nina, did you find love while you were in Bathurst? Yeah, sort of. Um, I did. This is what actually happened, is I went to a bushdoof. Um, As you do. As you do, as everybody, or like it's like a rite of passage when you turn 22, you need to go into the bush and take a bunch of hallucinogenics. Um, I genuinely think that, but anyway, whatever. I used to think that mushrooms like cured my depression, so I used to take them all the time. Um, <laughs> that sounds like a healthy relationship. Yeah. I mean, they didn't not. They gave me like a weird amount of confidence that I feel like I didn't have before. But anyway, I don't take them anymore because I'm scared that if I take them now, I'll like go backwards. Like I'll just get more depressed. But that doesn't make any sense. I'm not a woman of science, as previously mentioned. No, and this is definitely not a science show, but there, there is this thing about like microdosing like LSD and stuff. Well, like... I definitely didn't micro. I like maxi-dosed or whatever. I, I took a lot. And um, I one time when I was a bush doof, I like met... Um, this person by a campfire and also like at the time I just want to preface like I was like I'm bisexual and I was mostly dating women like it's pretty much only dating women at this time um but I met my soulmate what someone that I thought was my soulmate um because they look like Australia's favorite lesbian Ruby Rose um and so I was just really confused and I was like oh um dude but anyway we met and I decided he was my soulmate based on the fact that his um favorite episode of Black Mirror was White Bear and that's also my favorite episode of Black Mirror wow yeah um and then I think we talked for a little while and then like a week later so I remembered like when I woke up the next day um that he like I remembered his full home address, basically, um, and so that, and I decided he was my soulmate, right? Which is like, I guess if you're on a lot of drugs and you decide something, like that's that's the that's it, you know, you can't undecide it. Um, and I think I was just like at a weird stage in my life, so I was like, I'm gonna move to Bondi. I say Bondi in my show. It was actually Randwick, but it's more fun to make people in Bondi seem stupid. But I don't <laughs> live. I live now in Bronte, um, so it's technically true, but. Basically, yeah, I moved to like Randwick and I found this dude and I like knocked on his door when I moved there and um he Wait, so was your decision to move to Randwick inspired by the fact that he had told you his address was in Randwick when you yes. met him at a bush door? Yes. Wow. Um that's elaborate. It also coincided with the fact that I had a very cheap I found a very cheap house in Randwick. So I was like gonna go there okay so you move to randwick you've got this guy's address and yeah, you and show knock up on his door. knock on his door what happens uh his dad answers because he was 19 uh and i was 23 but i looked a lot older because i was taking a lot of drugs and like my face was just hot like i had a meth face like i wasn't on meth but i had a meth face let's just put it that way i look better and i think i look younger now because i eat food anyway <laughs> um but i yeah I like showed up at his door and his dad answered. He's like, "Who are you?" And I was like, "Oh, I met your son at a festival. So I don't know if he's here." And the dad was like, um, "No, like, what's what's his name?" And I was just like, "I don't know." It's <laughs> just like I don't know this guy's name. But I was like, "Well, his favorite episode of Black Mirror is White Bear," <laughs> and the dad was like, "Well, that 
like I've had, I've got two sons that like they both went to fest the same festival. Like you need more information, so like I get out my phone and I like Google a picture of Ruby Rose, and I show it to him, and the dad's like, "Yeah, I know the one," um, and he's like, "He's not here, but here's his phone number," and um, then he gives me his phone number, and good dad, no bad dad, bad dad. If like a meth lady showed up at your front door. If I go twenty four year old like drug addict showed up at your door asking for your son's number, I would not give it to them. But hey, each to their own. Each to their own. I think so the you... dad was like a pro- he was like a British music producer back in the day. Like the Cure just used to go and stay at their house and stuff like that. So I think he was just like used to kind of weird. Like that's a very rock and roll wow. thing. I think like, there are a... so many elements to there this are... story. There's so many that I haven't put in the show, but I just think it's a funny like thing okay so you've got the number i have the number what's I, the message i call the number we meet up we ha- we take we take drugs in my unfurnished bedroom and uh we tell each other we love each other the first night that we met and he didn't remember me at all as well that's the other thing is he did not know who the hell i was um but he was okay with it i guess if that makes sense he was like yeah i'll come to your house yeah let's take pingers Am I allowed to say pingers? I've already said a lot worse things on this show. Um, I think we'll roll with it. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then we started dating. Um, but he turned out to be like a total sociopath. I mean, like, in hindsight, I'm like, he was 19. So it's kind of fine. Because, like, I have been 19 and I was also, like, like a bit of a psycho when I was 19. So I'm kind of, in hindsight, I'm like, oh, it's fine that he was a sociopath. But he was very, like, manipulative. Um, and he would, like, bring girls kind of past my house. And we lived in the same street. And then I'd be like, did you bring a girl past the house? And he'd be like, no, like, you're just depressed and anxious and you're probably, like, high. And I'd be like, yeah, I probably was. Wow. That's the sound of a bong. That's um, a very strange form of gaslighting. <laughs> yes, it was. I know. I think that's, like, the usual form of gaslighting is, like, you have a mental illness. That's what they always say, isn't it? Right. Like, you're just thinking that because you have mental illness. Um, but, yeah, it was it was all messed up. Um but yeah, that was that was the relationship. But it was also the fact he was like so he was also very impressive. Like his um what's the word? His like portfolio himself was like he would say he's like direct I'm directing like a secret show on channel ten or like I'm directing the secret triple J video clip. Um and then later I realized these things were secret because they weren't true. Um but at the time I believed him because he was like a child actor when he was the kid and he had like won a kid's choice award. And there's like a picture of him on his mantle getting slimed by iCarly from Nickelodeon. So I was like, well of course he works in all these things. But actually what he was doing was just like doing cocaine and like sleeping with a bunch of people that weren't me um but yeah it was a very interesting time to be alive that is possibly the most intense early love story i have ever heard yes let's Thank play you. some music <laughs> let's play the saddest song you've ever heard in tribute to lost love what is it um this is called hurtsville it's by jack ladder who's like one of the most beautiful uh, australian musicians um and it's about being in the space uh post breakup um yeah let's play it Yeah. 
Jack Ladder there from Sydney with Hertzfield, chosen by Nina Oyama. She is my guest on this show, Out of the Box, for just a few minutes longer. Nina, how did you first meet Angus Thompson? Oh, Angus Thompson, uh, I met him at a party in like 2014 and um, Angus has cerebral palsy and he's in a wheelchair um, and he's like quite hard to understand and when I first met him he was like, he had like two cigarettes in his mouth and like was just like being fed Jack and Coke by a carer and I was like, who is this wild guy and then I was like who is giving this guy two cigarettes and a Jack and Coke like where is this man's carer um but then my friend was like oh no that's just Angus like just tell him to shut up and then so like later when I was really drunk I was just like hey Angus shut up (laughs) for no reason like he didn't know who I was um but then after that we just became really really good friends um and then we just like hung out all the time and then one day he was like, be my carer. And I was like, okay. So I did. So you went from being Angus's close friend to being his carer. Yeah, because I was like, I don't want to take care What do you have to do someone. as a carer? Like literally nothing. <laughs> it's pretty much the same as being his friend. I just got to, like he can't feed himself. So I just got to give him food. Um, and that's pretty, like brush his teeth. That's pretty much it. Everything else is like, or like get him into a car and get him out of the car, but everything else is like super chill. But it's just, it's just food and teeth, I think. How long did that last for? Oh, I'm still his carer. Oh, he like came out to Sydney the other day and I was like, sick. We just hung out for three days. We went to the Australian Directors Guild Awards because um, we were nominated for Best Direction in a comedy web series. Well, that's what I want to ask you about. I mean, how did the idea to make a TV show about your and Angus's relationship come about? Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention. So me and Angus, uh, when we were, we were when we were both living in Bathurst, um, I, I don't know, I've always wanted to make a show about Angus because he's so good at... He's just very, like, charming and, like, really charismatic... And like a really fun dude. And I was like, he would be so good in a show. Um, so we decided to make a web series about it. And then we just used university equipment. Like we had zero funding. Like I didn't even know how funding worked. Um, but we just shot like two episodes of a web series that I wrote that was really sad. But then the ABC Fresh Blood opportunity came along, which is where ABC gives um, a bunch of people like $20,000 each to make a three-part web series. And... Um, yeah, so I was just like, we'll just cut all this footage that we have of a sad web series and we'll put like an upbeat um, track behind it and like put all these like flashing words on the screen. And we did. We made like a comedy trailer from these like really depressing rushes. Um, and then the ABC were like, cool, well, we'll want to give you guys money. And so then that was the Angus project, the first version. Um, and then after we submitted those three ones, the ABC was like, we want to make that a whole pilot that goes for 30 minutes. And then so that's how the Angus project became a pilot, I guess. And then it was nominated for Best Comedy in a Web Series for the Australian Directors Guild Awards. And I directed it, so that was real cool because I've never been nominated for anything before. So what it's are real you, honor. What are you trying to achieve uh, through the Ang- Angus project, like at a high level? Uh, well, the show is about Angus Thompson. It's about Angus and me and our friendship during uni. So it's basically just like me being the bad carer that will give him two cigarettes and like Jim Beam or whatever. But the, our dynamic is that Angus is actually more high-functioning than me. I'm just like this dumb idiot that he needs to like rein in. Uh, and what we want to achieve is just basically like putting uh, cerebral palsy into the mainstream because it's just not like we... There's, like, no main characters with cerebral palsy in Australian TV. Um, In America there is now. There's, like, special on Netflix. There's Speechless, which just got cancelled. But really in Australia there's nothing like it. And so we wanted to bring that onto Australian screens because we have no real, like, famous people with cerebral palsy that are of an Australian identity. And The Angus Project is a very Australian show. Like, it's set in regional Australia. Um, Like, one of the main... Sammy J plays, like, a meth dealer. Um, Like, Veronica Milsom uh, for Veronica and Lewis is also in it as, like, a really bad um, support worker. And Rob Sitch, again, from Utopia, um, is in it as well as, like, a terrible journalist who's also Angus's boss. And I think we just wanted to show, like, cerebral palsy as... It's something that doesn't inhibit you in life like it doesn't inhibit Angus he just like in the show the character of Angus um he works for like as a journalist and 
he covers the stories he wants to cover. And we also decided to put in for that episode, um, there, he covers like this kind of douchebag Paralympian who's also in a wheelchair. Because we were like, not all people in wheelchairs are like that nice or like kind-hearted or inspirational. So because Angus is there and he was kind of like the token good guy character, we also put like this total dickhead Paralympian in there. And that's played by Adam Bowes, who's really great. You might have seen him in Jeremy the Dud. Um, but he was just such an asshole. Uh, not to work with, working with him was great, but his character is like such a dick. And so, yeah, we, we just wanted to like basically not show disability as something inspirational. We wanted to show it as like something that is just a way of life and that's fine, you know. And on that pretty important note, what can we uh, play to finish this episode of Out of the Box, Nina? Ooh, um, this is, this. my final tune is called Haunted House. It's by Sir Baby Girl. Um, Sir Baby Girl is like, She's like a brand new up and coming queer artist who does bedroom pop. She's amazing. She's bisexual. So am I. Um, And this song is called Haunted House. It's great. And with that, I am perpetually grateful to my producers, Bree Jones and Nicole DiPaolo and Nina Oyama. Thank you so much for being on Out of the Box today. Thanks for having me. I was buried in the summer. All those parties ago. And I try not to remember. Till my body lets me go Just another haunted house I can't wait
This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.